Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Martin Roth, President of the University of Charleston, as our guest. All right, so let's talk about one of your favorite courses is marketing. Mm-hmm. And I can tell from being on your site, the research, boy, it's, it's pretty slick at University of Charleston. Can you talk a little bit about how did you come up with, uh, you know, I guess you could almost call it the coffee and cars you know, type of, of interviews that you do. Yeah, so that was an idea that I'd first seen at the University of South Carolina when I was on faculty there. The uh, former president, Harris Pastides, um, when he took the position, he challenged the students there on uh, what kind of car he should drive. And um, the consensus apparently was a uh, Mini Cooper, a uh, little kind of in vogue at the time. And um, he said, great. So he bought one. It was painted um, garnet and black, the school colors. And he started doing mini conversations um, in the car. Uh, And then you fast forward a few years. I leave the university. And um, all of a sudden, this guy with a British accent, James Carden, uh, becomes very popular with carpool karaoke. Uh, So when I got here to UC, I started brainstorming with our marketing team and saying, hey, what can we do to raise our visibility, have some kind of interesting conversations with people, and um, said, well, let's see if we can do kind of our spin on conversations in the car, and um, ended up having a great um, set of dialogues with our local Land Rover dealer and pitched the idea of, let us do a program called Discover UC in a Land Rover Discovery and uh, we'll do half a dozen different interesting videos each year and we'll plug the vehicle and we'll plug the university and we'll see how it goes. And they said, yeah, let's give it a try. And it's been a fantastic success uh, and a great partnership for getting on for four years now. Well, I think what's so neat about that is it really does help strengthen and expand your brand. Mm-hmm. And it allows you to talk to alums, to coaches, to students and to David Robinson. That's right. Yeah, David Robinson's a friend of the university for a period of time. Uh, His sister was a member of our leadership faculty. So David had some familiarity with the university. Uh, We had him up to campus um, a couple of years ago, probably December, right before COVID. Um, And he was our commencement speaker, did a just fantastic job talking about hope and, you know, inspiration and qualities of great leaders. Um, and it was just terrific having him on campus. So when he arrived, I picked him up at the airport on a kind of cold, rainy winter day, and uh, we had a terrific conversation in the car. So he's just an, an outstanding person who has really done so much uh, to support education um, post his um, you know, incredibly successful NBA career. Um, and uh, you know, it's an honor to have him associated with our university. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't realize Carver Academy is tied to Dave Robinson. Yeah, so that was one of his and his wife's passions was to try to uh, kind of expand high quality educational opportunities to students that just didn't have great access in the communities where they lived. And, um, you know, the Robinsons had such a great experience when he was playing for the team in San Antonio that they, you know, set roots there. And uh, they uh, decided how could they make a positive contribution to provide better quality access to education and uh, kind of their mission, which they have like 100% successful filling, is that every graduate of Carver Academy is going to go to college. 
And, you know, this is with a population that's, you know, rate of college attendance had historically been very, very low, a lot of first generation low income students and so forth. So uh, really impressive accomplishments. And now the concept is, you know, kind of making its way across many states throughout the country. So let's let's walk through your journey a little bit. Um, and I guess the first question I'd have for you is, and maybe this is a silly question because of where you grew up and where you went to school, but are you a Steelers fan? <laughs> yeah, yes, of course. It's hard to grow up in Pittsburgh and not have a lot of black and gold flowing through your veins. So uh, Steeler fans, Penguin fans, uh, try to be a, a Pirates fan. Uh, they, they make it hard, I got to tell you. And uh, my wife, um, who I love dearly, is from New England. So um, you know, when the Patriots play the Steelers, it's usually not a good outcome for me. Uh, but the one area where she's been able to get me into the fold is as a Red Sox fan. But uh, yeah, I, I love Pittsburgh. You know, it's a big part of kind of you know, how I grew up um, with, with sports and all the cultural and ethnicity uh, in the city. My mom was an elementary school teacher, so I was around education. And my father was an independent pharmacist, so I was around business and a uh, small business owner. And I think that's a lot of the kind of formative things that ultimately kind of led me down the path that I pursued. Yeah, I think the Pirates, what, the We Are Family Pirates the last time they won a World Series. So, But that PNC Park is one of the most beautiful baseball stadiums around. Unbelievable. They did such a terrific job. And I think they draw fans to that venue in spite of the performance on the field sometimes. But yeah, you can't find a, a better ballpark. Uh, than PNC Park. They really did a terrific job. So who would you consider to be your mentors? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a few people have had a you know, pretty significant impact on me and um, you know, the person I've become and the professional uh, path that I've pursued. Uh, my parents, who I mentioned, you know, were you know, very significant uh, role models for me, uh, the value of education, the values of hard work, both of them were first generation college students and kind of seeing what they were able to accomplish and the kind of quality of life that they were able to provide for their family relative to how they grew up, um, you know, really made a lasting impression upon me. And, you know, it's something that I'm able to carry to work every day as we increasingly are serving more first generation, low and in low income um, students from underrepresented groups and so forth. Um, you know, when I went to college, um, you know, my parents had, as first generation um, parents are prone to do, uh, you know, really tried to encourage my sister and I to, uh, you know, do better than they did in, in their eyes and, you know, become a doctor, become a dentist and so forth. So I started off in college with a healthcare track and um, quickly learned that organic chemistry and I weren't going to be the best of friends. So kind of needed to pivot a little bit and uh, decided, well, I really don't have a great game plan. So why don't I go into business? Everything's about business to some degree. And I just became really fortunate that I had just a terrific marketing professor um, that I just got to know personally and became friends. And as I was reaching kind of different kind of milestones in you know, my you know, young life and career, uh, he was somebody that I would reach out to and kind of would give me advice and ultimately um, helped to guide me down the path of coming back to school and getting my MBA, and then a little bit later, uh, pursuing a doctorate degree and ultimately um, going down the kind of higher education career path, and um, everything kind of um, kind of moved on from there. So, you know, you, um, 
you definitely worked on the, the for-profit business side. You have a number of consulting um, opportunities with businesses. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how that really has helped you and what, what you've been able to take from those experiences to the college campus? Yeah, for sure. Um, those have been some of the you know, really fun experiences that I've had is working with companies, particularly large multinational companies, whether it's executive education or consulting opportunities. And some of the things you realize pretty quickly is, you know, these are, you know, very successful organizations with very smart people. And probably their biggest constraint and the reason they need to bring somebody like me or, you know, any other, you know, quality consultant in is not because they're not smart enough. They just don't have the time. If they had enough time, they could figure these things out themselves. You know, there's some certain times when there's just some really specialized expertise that they need. Uh, but really, kind of time is everybody's kind of scarcest resource. And, you know, I think once you appreciate that, you realize that that's the case in higher education. We have really smart people, um, you know, as our vice presidents, executive vice presidents, program directors, deans, um, going down the line. And um, they can accomplish great things, but their biggest challenge is having enough time in the day to do it. And I think one of the other things that you know you learn when engaging with folks on the corporate side is, you know, they're very pragmatic. Um, while they look very fondly on back on their own education, uh, many of them like to um, support their alma mater or local um, educational institutions where they're living and working. Uh, and they appreciate theory and framework and frameworks and so forth. Um, at the end of the day, they're thirsting for knowledge that is going to help them make faster, better, more successful decisions. And I think that couldn't be more true in higher education today. We're facing so many externalities and, and so many pressure points that the better that we can inform ourselves, access good information, uh, make effective decisions, evaluate those outcomes, learn from them, and then dive into the next cycle, whether it's, whether it's a pivot on that issue or kind of moving on to the next item on the um, kind of agenda. Um, I think that sense of pragmatism uh, is increasingly important in higher education. And um, I think having been around those corporate settings has been beneficial for me uh, in helping our leadership team um, be nimble, be flexible, be innovative, creative, um, and ultimately be able to be decisive um, without, uh, you know, with the appropriate levels of humility um, and openness. So as we work in an environment where faculty governance is very important and we're surrounded by really smart people who have great ideas, uh, they're looking for us to be successful um, and we need to take those inputs. But at the end of the day, um, kind of the you know, key decisions uh, kind of rest with us uh, with accountability to our board um, and kind of having worked in those corporate settings, I think gives us the ability to do those things well. Well, and, and touching upon, you know, business and, you know, tying, you know, the University of Charleston with the local community and businesses, I know that right now um, there's a, uh, a, a downtown innovation hub mm -hmm. that's being developed. And there's also a healthcare simulation lab that's under construction, and I believe it will be ready by fall. Can you talk a little bit about how that helps really promote uh, the relationships that you have with businesses in the community? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, every day we're thinking about, you know, how do we fulfill our mission, which is to prepare each and every student for a life of productive work, enlightened living and community involvement. And for productive work, you know, that's having, you know, great faculty um, who care deeply about students who are passionate about their learning and providing them with transformative experiences that are going to help them identify who they want to be, where they want to go, and the best path to get there. And, you know, high impact practices like, you know, uh, internships and co-ops and research projects and simulations are, you know, just really important for students to be able to apply what they're learning and be able to see results in action. So, you know, we've historically had, you know, lots of immersive activities um, in the healthcare space. Uh, but we're very fortunate to um, receive some uh, really outstanding federal as well as state funding this year. And with that money, we're able to um, really build out some kind of new high-tech healthcare simulation spaces, new mannequins, anatomy tables, radiology imaging equipment. We're building a new nursing station. Uh, so students not only get the experience of the kind of the bedside patient experience, but what kind of trans, what happens in that um, kind of uh, public area where they're accessing information, interfacing with family members, interfacing with other healthcare professionals and so forth. So uh, really trying to provide the same type of experience in um, our um, academic buildings as uh, our students are gonna experience when they're out on uh, clinical rotations and ultimately uh, working in clinical settings. And a really fascinating new piece of that for us is a new virtual reality lab that we're building. So if you think about a topic like anatomy and physiology, which every single student who's going to pursue a healthcare field is going to study, and they're trying to learn about all the different parts of the body and how they interact with, with each other and become this amazing system, which is the human body, uh, there's only so deep a level of understanding you can get when you're looking at a PowerPoint presentation or looking at a page in a textbook. But now when you can put on headset and either your professor or you are controlling different images and being able to rotate the human heart, turn it on its side, make it larger, make it smaller, put yourself in the middle of it. So you're looking around at the left ventricle and how it's connected to other parts of the heart and so forth uh, is just fascinating. And we think is really going to um, kind of deeply um, improve students' understanding of the human body and, and how it works. So we're super excited uh, to be bringing that new technology to campus as part of our overall kind of healthcare simulation type of experiences. We also know on the business side that while we want our students who are studying you know, accounting and finance and entrepreneurship and so forth, that they're going to have similar types of hands-on learning experiences through simulations and internships and so forth. And one of the things that we're very fortunate to have here is our Worley Innovation Center, uh, which has 3D printers and Mac Lab and you know, all kinds of kind of high tech um, resources where students can deep dive into um, ideation and creativity and think about ideas that can be commercialized and how does that process work and how, kind of how can we help them and you know, give them opportunities to participate in business plan competitions and all those fun things. We often get questions and calls about can we provide those same services to uh, small businesses and we're just not currently scaled up to be able to do that um, here on our campus. 
Uh, so we just this week got notification from the US Economic Development Administration that we're getting a $1.5 million grant and we have a uh, matching funding coming from the city of Charleston and the Benetton Foundation um, here that, that serves Western Pennsylvania and West Virginia uh, to stand up a downtown innovation hub. It'll be located in the heart of downtown Charleston, uh, purposefully designed to help existing small businesses scale up and grow. So we'll be able to leverage our faculty resources in areas like business and entrepreneurship, digital media design, digital marketing, sales, business development, and help those small businesses while at the same time providing them with coaching and advising, and most importantly, providing them with opportunities to network with one another to provide the type of support structure that small businesses often need uh, to help them be successful. So de developing a cohort program of small businesses and taking them through um, a uh, kind of a one-year immersive experience while they're running their businesses, also engaging in these activities and having students be able to um, help them with projects and internships. So the students are learning from the small businesses, but they're also helping those small businesses. Uh, we think this is really going to be a, a win all the way around for the small businesses, for the city of Charleston, and uh, for our students and the university. So you have a, a broad array of, of students coming from 47 states, 45 countries, a large number of adult learners as well. Um, so can you speak a little bit about that? How do you attract them? And especially as far as first generation, how do you make sure they stay? Yeah, great question. So increasingly, we're a more and more complex organization in terms of the customers we serve and the programs that we offer them and the systems we need to have in place to support them. So on the one hand, we have the traditional campus-based programs. Um, and we have rich history and um, offering those programs, um, making sure that we're identifying students that may be at risk of being successful. Um, so identifying students that, you know, for example, are the first generation students and putting programming in place right off the bat before they ever arrive on campus to help make sure that they're gonna be successful when, when they get here because they haven't been around anybody um, that, has shared with them what the college experience has been uh, was like for them. Uh, we also are increasingly serving um, adult learners, and we have students that you know um, come back to school to become a physician's assistant, or come back to earn their MBA or one of our leadership degrees. And so we have processes in place to help them transition from you know their full-time jobs in the world of work to what it's gonna be like to reimmerse themselves full-time into an education program. But now over half of our students today are working while they're pursuing a degree, whether it's a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, or even a doctorate in something like executive leadership. Uh, they're working full-time and um, studying really hard and you know, juggling their family lives and their work lives and their school lives. Uh, with a really deep commitment of bettering themselves and providing uh, provide themselves with more kind of career advancement opportunities. So we've been at the forefront of online education for about a decade now. Uh, about half of our students are engaged with us fully online, and we've become very proficient at online delivery, primarily doing um, asynchronous learning, but for a lot of our programs, 
purposefully incorporating what we call a synchronous experience. So oftentimes, you know, our faculty will hold a uh, session on a Sunday evenings just for an hour, but it's a time for the students to be able to interact with each other and to interact with a professor. So they're making a lot of the deeper kind of social connections with each other that sometimes are a little more challenging for students to make when they're operating solely on an electronic uh, learning management system. So those programs have been very successful for us. And a lot of the students that are engaged in our online leadership programs are serving the country um, in the military. Uh, so they're coming from various branches. We have a lot of students uh, from the Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, but pretty much every branch of the military and, and you know, National Guard are represented. Uh, and it's an honor for us uh, to be able to serve them um, in a different way than uh, they're serving our country. Uh, but you know, really respect um, their um, you know, desires to make sure that they're doing everything they can to get the tools, get the skills, get the knowledge to advance within the branch that they're serving, but also to make sure that they're going to have the right skill sets that when their, when their um, military service ends, they're really going to be well positioned uh, for jobs in um, other industries and um, in other fields. So um, one of the things that I uh, try to explain to people who aren't as familiar with higher education is, you know, if you look at the traditional programs that we offer on campus, we're trying to be Barnes and Noble. You, you walk into this beautiful bookstore and it's comfortable and the coffee smells great and you're sitting in a chair and somebody's asking you, how can they help you, but giving you your space and they don't want to rush you, uh, but really kind of high touch experience. On the other hand, somebody that doesn't have time to go to Barnes and Noble, they're going to Amazon for that book. And what do they want? They want it quickly. They want it at a competitive price and they want good quality. They don't want that book to show up without, with missing pages, right? So here we are at one university. How do we be both Barnes and Noble and Amazon at a really high quality level? And that's a lot of what our leadership team kind of works together on is how can we manage those different types of operating systems, which oftentimes conflict and contrast with one another, but still have the same goal. The mission hasn't changed, regardless of where that student is from, how they're engaging with us. We want to prepare them for a life of productive work, enlightened living, and community involvement. And so that's a lot of what we think about here is how can we continue to be relevant on campus? How can we leverage the growth which is happening in the online space and do all of that at a very high quality level that's effective as well as efficient from an operational standpoint? <clears throat> So the way that students are evaluated is unique at University of Charleston. Can you talk about what does outcomes-based curriculum and education mean? Yeah, so we're less concerned with what the student has done and more concerned with what they're able to do. And that's why we put such a high emphasis on the applied and experiential learning. Uh, we want to make sure when they have an opportunity to do a project in class, when they have an opportunity uh, to be in the field on an internship, a co-op, or a clinical rotation, and certainly when they're ready to join a new organization for employment or get a promotion in their existing um, organization, that they're ready to hit the ground running and nobody is going to be disappointed in their performance. 
not their boss, not their supervisor, and certainly not themselves, that they're going to be able to go into that with a high level of confidence, uh, with a high level of skill, uh, with the right kind of bundle of professionalism and emotional intelligence that they're going to be successful. So that's a lot of what kind of we're focusing on are those kinds of outcomes. And, you know, we're monitoring um, kind of different surveys that we do where we're kind of benchmarking against peers. And, um, you know, we're you know, typically um, finding that our students are um, having deeper relationships with faculty, uh, making uh, better connections that are helping them uh, develop um, good kind of career paths and career choices. And um, they're feeling more confident and more satisfied uh, with their experience here at the university compared to peers uh, at other institutions uh, that are leading them to um, you know, really be successful when they finish their degrees and go on to uh, what's ever next for them. So you see a lot of the rock bands starting to tour the states again. I think I saw Poison and Def Leppard are reuniting to, to play different arenas. I understand that you like hard rock. That's true. What's your what's your favorite band? Oh, boy, that's a hard question. Well, you know, I I've kind of I grew up with bands like, um, you know, UFO and ACDC and uh, uh, Jews Priest and so forth. So those are still on the playlist when I'm at the fitness center working out in the morning. Uh, but, uh, you know, love jazz as well. And that's a, a kind of a lot of what I uh, listen to at home, especially when I'm uh, kind of, you know, on the weekend with the computer open, maybe on the back porch, getting some work done, you'll have some jazz going on in the background. So I'd say my tastes are, uh, are pretty eclectic, but uh, still, um, you know, Always love it when a Sammy Hager song comes on the, uh, you know, comes across my Spotify. That's right. I can't drive 55. I still remember that one. There you go. Yeah. So, so where do you see, where do you see University of Charleston in 10 years? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, we've been very fortunate in this really competitive space that where you've been seeing consistent year over year enrollment growth. Um, but you know, the composition of who's enrolled at the university continues to change where we're seeing more students, you know, adults engaging with us online uh, and fewer students opting for a campus-based experience. So I think over time, as we look forward, we'll continue to have um, a state-of-the-art uh, contemporary um, campus that provides a great learning environment, tradition, um, exceptional uh, residential life, athletic, um, other types of uh, co-curricular and extracurricular um, uh, student engagement opportunities, but we'll continue to expand uh, for the programs that, that uh, are targeting adult learners. Um, some will be campus-based programs. I'm sure in the future we'll, you'll see that we'll have more um, graduate healthcare programs, for example, uh, but also um, continuing to grow what we do online for students that, um, for one reason or another, um, opt to engage in their um, education from a distance. Um, so I think you'll continue to see the university grow. You'll see the university continue to innovate. Um, you know, we'll continue to try new things. We know we're not going to hit a home run every time we step up to the plate, but if we have a 300 or 400 uh, batting average, um, you know, we'll feel good that uh, we've had more successes than failures, and uh, those successes will be the things that will help us uh, make sure that the university is on a sustainable path forward into the future.
University of Charleston was founded in 1888 as a seminary. Could you walk us through your rich history, please? Yeah, so I can give you uh, kind of the highlight film there. So the university did start off as a uh, Methodist seminary, uh, grew into a uh, kind of community college of sorts, then became a four-year institution. Um, ultimately, um, became an independent uh, university, uh, no longer affiliated with the Methodist Church, which is what we are today. Um, we moved from Barbersville, West Virginia, where that first uh, seminary was located, uh, to Charleston, West Virginia. Um, and we've been at this location about 75 years now. Uh, so we have a beautiful setting uh, right across from the state capitol, separated by the Kanawha River. So we have one of the most uh, kind of beautiful locations on campus. And in fact, uh, we're the site of uh, many, many weddings and other types of events. Uh, where we have this, this unparalleled view and you know beautiful facilities in which to celebrate uh, those types of events. Um, so yeah, we're we're continuing to thrive as a private uh, independent university, um, and um, you know, but work very closely with um, representatives and state government and some of our partners, um, you know, public higher education institutions. Um, and um, you know, we're all fighting a lot of the same challenges with the, uh, the demographic cliff. And um, you know, we're in a relatively small state uh, that's not seeing population growth. So uh, we have to be innovative and scrappy. And um, those are the things that we've been for a long time and uh, will continue to be uh, into the future. Now, I have a lot of questions around the demographic shifts. Uh, but we'll get to it. But before that, you've had a very rich and interesting history. You, you've been around many places in the world. You, you've actually thought in Asia and Europe. Um, but I would love for you to go back. Go back to your history as an individual. What brought you to higher education and to be a president today? Um, that journey is always fascinating to us and our listeners. Yeah, so my path to higher education was really um, that inflection point where um, I got to know and um, had uh, one of my faculty, one of my professors, marketing professor at the University of Pittsburgh, Bill Sauer, and uh, getting to know him and him becoming a mentor of mine and um, really had a um, kind of opened my eyes to higher education as a career path. And I was very fortunate that uh, when I pursued my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh, there was kind of great faculty and um, a real commitment for students to kind of create their own uh, kind of academic pathway. So I was very interested in things international. Um, and so I poked around into political science, uh, economics, and so forth. And where I landed for a minor was in cultural anthropology. Uh, at the time, Pitt had a very strong anthropology program and a, a couple of faculty members there, Jim Boster, Rich Scaglion, uh, kind of looked at me and said, you know, we don't get too many students from the business school coming over here asking us about uh, ethnography and cultural anthropology. But if you're interested, sure, you know, we'll be, be happy to have you. And uh, that enabled me to kind of combine my passion for marketing with cultural anthropology and kind of a study of kind of how does culture influence consumer behavior and ultimately how businesses can be successful uh, trying to create value for customers in different parts of the world. 
And um, that was, you know, been my passion for a long time and uh, kind of led me to uh, begin teaching, you know, in international marketing, international strategy, uh, seeking opportunities to uh, teach at um, other universities. So, um, you know, loved the, the chances to spend a long weekend or spend a couple months uh, in a different country and kind of meeting new people, you know, faculty colleagues and interacting with students and, you know, eating the food and visiting the sites and learning about the history and the culture of different locations. And it was kind of a big part of, of kind of my early informative years in higher education. But then as often happens, um, I had the opportunity to dive into an administrative role. The uh, Dean at the time in the uh, Darlamore School of Business at the University of South Carolina, Joel Smith, a great friend, uh, gave me a call and said, hey, you've been doing a great job helping out with our flagship international MBA program. I uh, really like you to take over as the executive director. So I figured, well, okay, everybody needs to, to kind of to spend their time in the bucket and do that service commitment to the institution. So I uh, kind of dove in and found out uh, managing the program was a lot more complicated than I thought and went from being your typical independent contractor faculty member, uh, doing my own thing to having 16 staff members who uh, were deeply committed to the program and, their, and our students, but you know had uh, their own issues professionally and personally that became my issues and um, found that I really kind of enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed the pace. I liked the challenges. I liked the fact that I was going to go to work every day, having a plan of what I wanted to accomplish, but knowing that um, a whole bunch of things were going to pop up that were unplanned, and um, I would have to figure out how to juggle them and prioritize them and navigate them. And uh, that's what kind of got me hooked, if you will, on continuing along an administrative pathway in higher education. So had lots of opportunities to do interesting things at South Carolina, program director, department chair, oversaw innovation and strategy in the business school. And then uh, wanted to pursue a deanship, but felt um, I really wanted to transition from a really large public R1 institution to a smaller private school. And that's what led me to the University of Hartford. Great fit, um, had a wonderful five years there as a dean of the Barney School of Business. Uh, accomplished a lot of great things and uh, then knew that probably my next um, step in the leadership journey was going to be pursuing a presidency in a similar type of school. And that's what led me here to the University of Charleston. Now, I would be remiss if, as a former philosophy major if I don't say that University of Pittsburgh had one of the best departments when you were out there. They did. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I remember taking some philosophy classes when I was an undergraduate and certainly the uh, the influence of the philosophy department at Pitt um, influenced the strong emphasis on philosophy of science uh, exactly. within the PhD program um, at Pitt. Jerry Zaltman, another one of my mentors, um, uh, was kind of a um, you know, leader in the field of marketing, um, introducing philosophy of science of something that was kind of a fundamental body of knowledge that anybody going through a doctoral program should uh, have exposure to. And uh, it was a really um, kind of interesting time um, to be at the University of Pittsburgh and take advantage of all those great intellectual resources that were there. Absolutely. And for many years, University of Pittsburgh was the number one uh, philosophy department when it came to philosophy of science. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I, I'm, I'm still uh, dating myself, but you mentioned anthropology, very respected humanities. You actually have to study hard in that. Mm -hmm. um, now, it sounds to me, you know, with the investment that's been made 
in downtown Charleston. Would you say you're considered an anchor university for that community and for that city? Uh, and and what, 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 is, what is that intake? Because there's, there's been a lot of discussion about you know, town gown, there's been a lot of discussion about rural anchor universities and you know, suburb anchor university. How, how do you position Charleston in relation to the University of Charleston in relationship to the town that you dwell in? That's a great question. One of the things that really struck me when I first arrived and I was meeting all kinds of business and community leaders in the area, um, a common thread in our conversations was if Charleston's going to be a thriving city, it needs to have a thriving university. And while West Virginia University is the flagship here in our state, it's three hours away in Morgantown. It's closer to Pittsburgh than it is to Charleston. Marshall University um, is an hour away. Um, we were and are the main university in Charleston. Now there's a community college, Bridge Valley nearby, there's West Virginia State University, which is nearby, but we are the one that has a city address. And we're right across from the state capitol. But people would remark, you know, we know that the university is across the river. We come over there once in a while, you'll have some speaker event or symphony Sunday when there's a Sunday in June where symphony comes and plays on the lawn all day. You know, we love your campus. We know your campus. We just don't see the university downtown. What can you do to help make the city of Charleston be a more thriving place? And those initial conversations is really what kind of planted the seed that's been kind of growing um, slowly but consistently over the last few years and became the nexus for this concept of creating a innovation hub downtown. So we see this as a really great opportunity for us to literally have our flag, have our brand in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh. We're going to be right next to some of the best restaurants and ice cream shop and bookstore, um, art galleries and so forth. That you really capital, the corner of Capitol and Lee streets, there's not a better location in downtown Charleston. And we're very fortunate uh, that longtime supporters of the university, um, John and Fonda Elliott, um, have um, provided us with access to that space that they own at the kind of retail level, where we'll be able to um, create this um, uh, downtown innovation hub. So, you know, I think this town-gown relationship is really important. We work very closely with the, uh, the, the, you know, the city of Charleston. Um, I mentioned a pillar of our mission is community involvement. Every year on Labor Day, we don't have any classes. Instead, we all, all of our students, our faculty and staff, are out in the community doing community service projects, and we coordinate those with the city. So we're washing fire trucks and we're painting curbs yellow, yellow and picking up trash and walking dogs in the Humane Society, planting flowers, pulling weeds, whatever they need us to do, we're out there in our maroon and gold t-shirts getting it done. So having that close relationship uh, with the city, whether it's city government, local area businesses where our students can get those experiential learning opportunities, um, making sure that if that you know they have every opportunity after they graduate to stay here in Charleston and you know contribute um, economically and socially to the community. Um, those are all things that we're uh, very uh, conscious of trying to make happen. Now, I, I've done quite a bit of research on the Appalachian communities, and there's not a perfect definition of what is Appalachian, but one thing is clear with all the literature that West Virginia is squarely 
and Appalachian community, right? So that, that there's no doubt because it's part of North Carolina, part of South, but the entire West Virginia kind of falls in that category, right? Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of discussions in terms of policies um, in, when you think about these particular communities because it, all in all, most of these colleges are uh, catering to more first-generation students. Um, a lot of them are considered smaller town and, and rural, and, and there's that anchorship part of it. And during COVID, one thing that really stood out, and you could keep me honest with this because it's interesting, you all have some terrific healthcare from physician assistants, to pharmacy school, all that stuff. A, a lot of the burden of dealing with the epidemic fell on the colleges and universities for infrastructure and support. So uh, if you don't mind just going to, why are you such an important part of the entire infrastructure, especially when it comes to healthcare and, and what role do you all play? Now, you're absolutely right. If you look at the, the largest employer vertical in West Virginia is healthcare. So, you know, a perfect fit for us to be offering programs to fit the kind of workforce needs um, in that sector. Uh, but when it came to the pandemic, um, yeah, we worked very closely with the um, Kanawha Charleston Health Department and the State uh, Division of Health and Human Resources. They were looking to, for anybody for help. And one of the first places they were coming to were the area universities to say, hey, you know, we, we've got, we got all these vaccines. We don't have enough people to get them into arms. Can your pharmacy students come over and help us uh, do vaccination clinics? Um, can um, you, your nursing students help us with uh, COVID-19 testing uh, clinics and, and so forth? So it was a great learning opportunity for our students. Uh, we were happy to help. Uh, but then when the pendulum swam the other way, when we were figuring out how are we going to reopen our campuses and bring students back in the fall of uh, 2020, the health departments were ha you know, happy to assist, set up clinics on campus. So we could test everybody when they first arrived on campus or later on down the road, uh, provide vac vaccine clinics and so forth. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that's um, really unique about uh, Appalachia is, um, you know, people come together and um, the, the communities are, are warm and they're welcoming. Uh, they have their history, they have their traditions. It's, you know, in some ways it's hard to break them from that, but at the heart of those communities are really passionate and caring people. And I think with the pandemic uh, that kind of really brought out the best um, in folks here uh, with a willingness uh, to kind of work together uh, and see how we could, you know, kind of join forces to navigate through the uncertainties of the pandemic as uh, successfully as possible. You, you mentioned the demographic cliff, right? It, it, it was interesting because a couple of days ago, an article came out that actually the population did not recede as much as they ex we expected. But Nevertheless, there's there, there's going to be a drop from, you know, in, not, well, 2025 to for about a decade. We expect to see decline. So as you think about the next decade, what are what do you see as your top three priorities? Yeah, so one is we have to be as strategic as possible with our programs and our portfolio to make sure that we are offering the programs that 
the students that are going to be graduating from high schools are the most interested in. Uh, we just aren't going to have offer, you know, have the luxury of uh, miscalculating or misfiring with regard to what we offer in the marketplace. Uh, the second is that this means that we're going to have to continue to be less reliant on the traditional college age student and more reliant on the older working adult student or customer. And then the third piece of that is understanding that that market's going to become increasingly segmented. So is it the degree completer, the adult that never completed their undergraduate degree, so how can we help them earn a bachelor's? Is it the student that already holds a degree but is looking for ways to advance their career? So what type of graduate programs uh, can we offer? And how can we provide them with not only the best quality possible, but the most flexibility possible. So even programs today, which are still campus-based, are there ways that we can make them more hybrid to have distance learning components to them to give those students as much flexibility as possible with regard to how they're going to engage with us for their educational experience. And also recognizing that, you know, the, the, paradigm of everything at a college or university needs to be a degree isn't going to be the path forward. Degrees are always going to be important, but I think more and more, you know, as it's certificate programs or other types of credentials, hopefully they can be stackable and ultimately turn into a degree. Um, but there, you know, ultimately you're going to be uh, students that you know want a uh, short burst of education, some specific skill set or body of knowledge. Uh, that's what either they're going to be willing to pay for, their employees going to be willing to pay for, and that might be it. And we need to be sure that um, you know we're in that competitive space and um, in a way that uh, they uh, those uh, organizations or those students uh, see us as um, a good value alternative. Now. Definitely lifelong learning is, is a big concern, right? So with every president that we've spoken to, you know, people are retiring later, they got to come back for retraining. You made a very interesting point that, you know, there are a lot of smart people out there and your organization has a lot of, you know, like, you know, human capital that could tackle very tough problems. But are there problems that, you wish you think you don't have enough time to tackle today? Yeah, there's, uh, there's never enough time in the day. Um, yeah, there's never enough time, never enough money. Um, yeah, I think the things that we're always thinking about, are, of course, are enrollment. Um, how can we ensure that, you know, every student has every opportunity to be successful and, and that we're able to continue to move the needle in a positive direction on retention rates and graduation rates. Um, and also, you know, really thinking carefully about physical assets versus non-physical assets. You know, the history, you know, the history in higher education has always been, um, you know, build a new building, upgrade facilities, renovate, so on and so forth. But the reality is if we're going to continue to have a lower and lower percentage of students utilizing our campus, um, we have to be you know, really smart about what that campus needs to look like and how it needs to function. Now, hopefully, you know, we say right now we're 3,000 students, 1,200 of them here in our Charleston campus. 
you know, in 10 years, if we're at 10,000 students, but still 1,200 in our Charleston campus, then great. You know, we, our facility is still the perfect size, but is it likely to be exactly 1,200? Probably not. So if it turns out more students want to come to campus, those are going to be some hard decisions about is the capital investment in a new building, you know, going to give us a, you know, a good ROI. But the, the less preferred question is now we're down to 1,000 students on campus or 800 students on campus. Um, you know, what do we do with some of these physical assets that we have? So I think those are some of the things that, um, you know, we're thinking about all the time. I probably never have enough data to be able to fully forecast, um, you know, what the tea leaves are going to be five or 10 years from now. But, uh, um, you know, in a, in a perfect world, we'd probably be spending more time on those kind of, you know, long-term, um, you know, forecasts and uh, kind of longer-term strategic plans. Dr. Roth, anything else you would like to share with our audience? No, it's a great conversation. I really appreciate these uh, insightful questions and uh, uh, really appreciate uh, your passion for higher education and making these uh, podcasts available. Our pleasure. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much. Okay.